Welcome to the AWS Tech Chat. We're Solution Architects based in APAC, and we help customers adopt the AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and deep tech dive into topics of interest. Hello, my name's Shane Baldacino, and this is episode 71 of the AWS Tech Chat podcast. And for today's show, I don't have Pete or one of my usual co-hosts, but instead, after popular demand and based on show stats, to which is now our second most popular episode, I've brought back my container Yoda, Mitch Beaumont. Welcome to the show, Mitch. Hello, Shane, and it is absolutely great to be back, and I can't believe it's been 16 episodes since we last caught up. Yeah, it's, uh, it's been a bit of time, but you know, it was a good episode. Now, I think we're catching up, Mitch, a little bit too early. You're a popular man, you know, this is our uh, listeners, you know, 7.30 a.m. in the morning, you know, <laughs> trying to get this episode out. So look, Mitch, last time I had you on the show, we spoke about containers, obviously a really compelling topic. We covered areas such as container history, networking, observability and monitoring tooling through to everything like Firecracker. Now, if all this sounds like news to you and you want to get a good grounding on containers, check out episode 55. Now, today we're going to tackle a topic I hear in customer land a lot. Containers may be a buzzword, but Kubernetes is almost becoming common vernacular. Everyone almost seems to be running a Kubernetes cluster or wants to move to Kubernetes. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Shane. And I hear Kubernetes coming up in in almost every other conversation that I have these days. And I think it's part of customers starting to take those first steps into modern application development. And and hopefully over the course of today's show, we can share some expert tips and guidance around how you can get started with Kubernetes, how you can make some smart decisions that are going to lead to successful Kubernetes deployments on AWS going forward. A bit of thinking up front always pays dividends. Now, look, like our last show, I'm going to play second fiddle to Mitch, use today as a bit of Q&A, and I'm going to walk through some questions that I hear in the field, forums, and even those I'm personally interested. But quickly, a lap around the world that is AWS. Now, listeners, since we last spoke, a myriad of online summits have occurred. Now, it was a bit different to the way we consume content, and in some ways, dare I say, from a consumer, Mitch, it was great to be able to consume it from the comfort of my home. I'm a bit of a multitasker. Now, I do believe, Mitch, you presented in a virtual manner. Can you tell us about your session? I did, indeed. It was great. I presented a session called, um, and I'm not saying my session was great. Hopefully it was, but uh, the, the event was great. Um, and, and yeah, I presented a session called The Art of Successful Kubernetes Failures. And the idea behind that session was to really help educate customers on some of the different ways that you can configure an instrument and operate your Kubernetes clusters so that you're more resilient and, and the applications that are running inside of those clusters are more resilient when it comes to failures and different types of component failures within the cluster there. And I think one of the highlights, uh, apart from being able to deliver it and, and be there on the day and, and answer questions from customers, was the experience of getting to try and record it at home. Um, obviously, we're in the middle of um, working from home at the minute in light of what's going on with, with COVID-19. So uh, credit to, to everyone involved in, in this year's event. Uh, we all had to set up our own recording studios at home, use cameras and be essentially directors, producers and presenters for all of these videos. So it was a great learning experience there. That's perfect, actually, for this show. So look, these videos are available on demand. We will leave a link to Mitch's session, The Art of Successful Kubernetes Failures. Couldn't be more perfect for this show in the show notes. We might get you some extra downloads there, Mitch. Brilliant. 
Okay, SummitWise listeners, check the events page for updates for our Global Summit series. Now, some have been rescheduled. Some have been canceled, so please check the event page as things are changing quite frequently. Just search AWS events in your favorite search engine. The next virtual summits are in Warsaw, Poland and Madrid in Spain, both on June 17. And to repeat, these are virtual events. Now, region-wise, we're still at 24 with South Africa and Milan recently coming online, as we mentioned in the last episode. But CloudFront has added two more pops, giving a total of 218 edge locations with two new edge locations in Kolkata, India and Hamburg in Germany. Mitch, that will do it for the news. I want to talk Kubernetes. Now, Kubernetes appears to just popped out of nowhere in my mind, you know, in the last few years. Now, I knew it was originally born out of Google in 2014. So really, it's not that old. And now it's open source and managed by the CNCF or Cloud Native Computing Foundation. Now, I always like to know where things come from. And whilst the first release of Kubernetes was in 2014, there are many projects that, that you know, that led to what we know today as Kubernetes. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, and I think it... it, it it started probably way back in in around about 2003 2004 time frame maybe maybe my numbers are a little bit off there but i think it was around that time uh, and it started off as a small scale project uh, as a solution or a system called borg and this is essentially a distributed data center operating system that google used to manage all of the containers in their data centers um, and all of the software running in those containers which essentially powered what you and i know as as you know, google's search engine um, so it was a, an internal cluster management system, which was used to run hundreds of thousands of jobs or containers from a variety of different applications across a variety of different data centers, across a variety of different clusters with, with tens of thousands of machines. So this sounds like container orchestration before that was even termed a thing. Um, and again, for those who missed episode 55, Mitch describe this in a non-technical way. And I think you described it like Tetris. You know, when you play Tetris, you try and get blocks of all sorts in different shapes and sizes organized as efficiently as you can. If you don't do a good job, you end up with lots of unused space, unused resources, and eventually the game ends. But if you do a really good job, you know, you start making use of all these slots. And that is container orchestration in a nutshell. You know, it's getting the best use of your resources. And rather than Tetris blocks, we're substituting those Tetris blocks with Docker containers that are running on compute. And in the case of AWS, it's EC2. So from Borg, there was Amiga in 2013, which followed on with the work of Borg. So following Borg, Google introduced the Amiga cluster management system, you know, a flexible, scalable scheduler for a large compute clusters. This was made public where Borg wasn't. And then Mitch, we had Kubernetes. So 10 years really from Borg through to Kubernetes. Yeah, absolutely. There's There's been a lot of history to this project. Um, and uh, the great thing is most of it's been out in the open. So you can easily go and look online, look at the various commits in the different project re repos and actually see um, right through from the very first commit that was made uh, by the by the original three engineers at Google uh, through to, to the, you know, where it is today. So I think um, in around about 2014, give or take uh, maybe mid-2014, that's when the initial commit was into the open source repo. Um, for, for Borg. Uh, then it went through a number of different iterations. And over time in, in, uh, in about mid-2014, uh, maybe 2015, uh, it was actually picked up as the seed technology project for the CNCF or the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, which was a, an offshoot of the, the Linux Foundation uh, designed to nurture and grow and, and develop the communities and ecosystems around open source projects and, and Kubernetes uh, being the first of those open source projects. And then as the years passed by, uh, um, obviously, 
the communities around that grew and we saw that firsthand. Um, we, we ourselves introduced at AWS our own container orchestration system. Um, and a lot of that was driven by the, the rise of, of Docker as, a, as an ecosystem of tools that was really designed to make containers accessible to, to the mere mortals. A lot of the challenges typically involved in using containers before were the complexities of deploying containers and, and actually creating the container objects themselves in, inside of the operating system. So, so Docker gave rise to mainstream utilization of containers. Uh, obviously, Kubernetes picked up a lot of momentum off the back of that, as did our own Elastic Container Service or, or ECS. So you can see it's been a very, uh, very long and, and, and colorful uh, history for, for Kubernetes. Um, in around about 2017, um, in amongst all of the hype and activity with our customers for Kubernetes, we also introduced uh, EKS or um, Amazon Elastic Kubernetes Service, which is our fully managed Kubernetes control plane offering. Nice one. You know what I find interesting in looking through the history of Kubernetes, right, is my son at that stage was a big Pokemon Go uh, fan. And the fact that in 2016, Pokemon Go, there was a case study released for Kubernetes. Um, that's pretty cool. You know, Pokemon Go um, was a very large or the largest Kubernetes deployment on Google Container Engine ever. And that's pretty cool. It is very cool. It is very cool indeed. In fact, we have a colleague who loves Pokemon Go. We should maybe bring him on to talk about that one day. <laughs> Speaking about Frank here. <laughs> I am. I hope you're listening, Frank. Now, we've covered a bit of a history lesson on where we've come from. Let's talk about the core concepts in Kubernetes. Now, Kubernetes defines a set of building blocks or primitives, which collectively provide mechanisms that deploy, maintain, and scale these applications based on you know, some constraints like CPU, memory, or custom metrics. It's a loosely coupled and extensible to meet different workloads. And this is largely provided by the Kubernetes API, which is used by internal components as well as extensions and containers that can run on Kubernetes. Kubernetes exerts its control over compute and storage resources by defining objects, which can then be managed as such. Now, I don't want to talk too much about ECS in this episode, but in my mind, you know, a lot of this is really potato, potato. The key objects in Kubernetes are, so we've got pods, right? So a pod is a higher level extraction grouping containerized components. And a pod consists of one or more containers that are guaranteed to be co-located on the host machine and can share resources. The basic scheduling unit in Kubernetes is a pod. Now, Mitch, what would be the equivalent to a pod in ECS? Great question. The, the equivalent to a pod in ECS or, or Elastic Container Service would be a task. Um, we call this a task and we define it using a task definition. And, and as you've rightly said there, it's a, a, a task or a pod is, um, is a collection of uh, containerized applications. Um, that's the really important thing. Now, I think at a at a basic level, it's okay to think about a pod as a single container, but but that's not actually the case. And you talked about co-located or co-scheduling there. So I can wrap um, a number of containers inside of a pod or a task and have them co-scheduled on the same piece of infrastructure. Um, and the reason for that, I might want to do that, is it's, it's a bit of an anti-pattern to actually package up too many components inside of a single container. Um, ideally, a single container would do one thing and do it really, really well. So if I had an application that had two core and very tightly dependent components, rather than putting them both inside of a single container, I might package them up in two containers, but actually make them part of the same pod. And then they would be deployed side by side on that piece of infrastructure. 
and they're then able to talk to each other as if they were we were as if they were running um, side by side. They share the same network stack. They share the they, they share the same resources. They share the same uh, virtualized or, or isolated file systems and process IDs. But they are separate. They can be managed separately. They can be deployed and updated independently of one another. And a failure in one of those containerized components doesn't necessarily mean it would impact the failure of a or impact the the core application that's running inside of that. So I, I talked about the way that pods and uh, ECS tasks um, share a number of different types of resources. And, and one of those resources is the network stack, as I mentioned before. Uh, and so what this means is that essentially every time you deploy a pod inside of a Kubernetes cluster, whether that's a Kubernetes cluster that you've deployed yourself on-prem or in AWS using um, EC2 as a, as a platform or using the Amazon EKS service, each of those pods gets its own unique IP address, which means that um, all of the other pods inside of that Kubernetes cluster are able to communicate that and reference each other in the same way as they would do if they were just other nodes on, on the network there. Uh, the applications that are contained inside of that pod, so as I, as I mentioned, we could have multiple containerized applications running inside of a single pod. They're all able to talk to each other on local host because of the fact that they share that network stack or that network namespace. Nice one. All right. So isn't development 101, thou shall not use IPs to communicate? I think it is. Uh, that that thou shall the, not use host file. See Windows System 32, etc. <laughs> exactly. All right. Cool. So a pod can define a volume such as you know a local disk, directory, or network disk and expose it to containers in the pod. You can manage a pod through the Kubernetes API or the management can be delegated to a controller. Now, such volumes are also the basis for Kubernetes features such as config maps, which provide access to configuration through the file system visible to container or secrets, which provide access to credentials needed to access remote resources. Now, we'll get into secrets manager. I've got a question for you later about secrets manager versus Kubernetes secrets, you know, what's appropriate, yeah. but we'll cover that later. Tell us about replica sets, Mitch. Replica sets, they are uh, an object. And I guess let me take a step back, and this is probably something that's worth calling out for, for everyone that's listening in today. Um, everything inside of Kubernetes is defined as an object. So I'll often refer to things like replica sets or services or pods as objects. These are all API objects that we can mutate through calls to the API. And then Kubernetes itself or the core components of Kubernetes, which run on what we call the control plane or the, the masternodes within the cluster, are responsible for assessing the state of those objects and then ensuring that that desired state is enforced across the, the cluster. So if I were to create a pod um, within my Kubernetes cluster, the Kubernetes um, controller manager services that run on the, the masternodes will um, continually monitor the state of that object or the objects inside of the etcd database, which is the persistence layer that, that, uh, that Kubernetes uses. And it will see that I've made a change. Uh, it might be that I've asked for a uh, pod to be created uh, or a number of pods to be created. It will observe that change, and then it will orchestrate through a series of control loops the, the cluster components, so um, elements like the kubelet, which is essentially the Docker component that runs on each of the nodes inside of your cluster, to create a, a pod on each of the nodes. 
and um, and hydrate that pod with the the necessary containerized uh, or sorry necessary container images and, and networking components that are required. So um, objects are at the core of all things Kubernetes when we think about it. And if I talk about replica sets, replica sets is another object that is actually responsible for managing another object. So we have lots of nested objects inside of Kubernetes, and what we use a replica set for is for maintaining a stable set of pods. If I deployed a single pod to run my WordPress application, for example, um, and that pod were to fail, obviously my WordPress application is is unavailable, uh, not great from an availability uh, story and and not great from a a resiliency perspective. So I would use a replica set to define a uh, multiple pods. So when I create my replica set objects, I would define the template for the pod itself and what I want this pod to look like, and also the number of pods that I want uh, to be running. So uh, rather than just saying one copy, I want to run two copies or three copies or, or five copies, however many I want to run. And that directive and that definition that I've defined for that particular replica set object there then is observed by the Kubernetes controllers. And it will then ensure that there is always at least that many numbers or that, that number of pods running for that particular uh, that particular application. Nice. So this to me sounds like a HA mechanism, Mitch. Yeah, it, it's a good way of it's a good way of building resiliency into your applications, always ensuring that you have uh, one or more of a given application, or more than one, should I say, is, is the best practice there of a given application or of a given container running in your cluster at any one point in time. Uh, what it doesn't do is necessarily enforce resiliency across nodes inside of your cluster. And when I talk about nodes, I'm referring to, in the case of AWS, EC2 instances, which are running an operating system and a container runtime and the Docker server-side components that allow you to actually run the container. So um, whilst the replica set itself will make sure that there is always a set number of pods running um, based on what is defined, uh, it doesn't enforce that these pods get scheduled on multiple nodes inside of your cluster. Now, we all know, um, especially if we've uh, we've dealt with AWS solutions architects in the past, that we highly encourage customers to use multiple availability zones inside of, uh, inside of AWS. And uh, when we deploy Kubernetes clusters, that still stands true. So we always encourage our customers to create multiple uh, nodes inside of the cluster, distribute those nodes across multiple availability zones, use replica sets to increase or, or to, to, to specify a stable set of pods inside of a, for a given application, and then use the scheduling components of Kubernetes to actually ensure that the pods are scheduled across the nodes um, in a fairly evenly distributed way in different availability zones. And that will provide you then with a, with a higher degree of, of availability. Makes perfect sense. Sounds like it's a well-architected deployment of Kubernetes there, Mitch. <laughs> All right. Um, tell us about services. We talked about pods being the smallest units of deployment. Um, we talked about replica sets, making sure that we have a stable set of pods running at any one point in time. Now, you can imagine containers are, are generally considered to be quite ephemeral. Um, Kubernetes is a very dynamic world. Pods come and go, they, they live, they die. They don't stop and they start. And they don't stop and, and start. And when a pod goes um, and a new one comes back, it comes up with a different identity. It might have a different IP address. So it looks, feels, and smells very different to the pods that came before it. And if you're trying to distribute requests um, from a client to an application running inside of a pod, and you've constantly got 
a shifting set of goalposts when it comes to the number of pods that are running at any one time, you can imagine there's a lot of work that would need to go in to constantly keep across all of those pods, make sure that your load balancers, load balancers are configured to route requests to all of those different pods with all those new IP addresses. So the idea behind a service in, in Kubernetes is that it provides a, a stable entry point by way of an IP address um, or a cluster IP inside of the Kubernetes cluster itself and a DNS name. And that, um, that stable entry point then provides a one-stop shop in order to be able to access all of the underlying pods that are actually providing services to the, uh, to the, to the end consumer of, of the application. Um, each of the pods, when they get created, they register what they call an endpoint, which is essentially an IP address in the context of the Kubernetes cluster. And then the service itself registers all of those endpoints um, within, uh, within the scope of itself. And it, it knows then, um, using a number of rudimentary uh, load balancing algorithms, how to distribute requests to the different underlying pods to, to maximize um, performance uh, of, of the application requests that are coming in from the outside world. Now, there isn't actually a physical thing or a logical thing inside of clusters that you see that is a service. It's a, it's a placeholder. Um, and an abstraction essentially on top of a set of IP tables rules at its basic level um, that are that are responsible for governing where these different requests get routed to. So when you create a service um, and then you create a pod that is attached to a given service and that attachment or that reference is done using labels. So when you create these pods that, that are attached to a given service, the service um, detects those, those new pods and then updates the IP tables rules across the cluster to ensure that when requests come in from an outside uh, ingress point like a load balancer, they can then be distributed to the underlying pods that are able to actually process that request. Cool. Now, I thought initially, Mitch, in ECS language, this was kind of like an ECS task, but it's not, is it? No, no. It, it's, it's the bit that sits on top of the ECS task. So in, in ECS, we also have the concept of a service, um, and it's really, again, designed to provide a, a consistent or stable point of entry on top of something that's highly dynamic. And that highly dynamic element in ECS is the tasks. And in, in EKS or Kubernetes, it's the pods. Um, we don't expect these pods or these tasks to be constantly running and constantly running with the same IP addresses. We expect them to come and go. It's part of the design of the solution. Uh, and we need a way to manage that or at least have persistence there. And, and the service construct um, in Kubernetes provides that persistence uh, or consistency, should I say, persistence being the wrong word, consistency to, from an access perspective. And, and it does the same in ECS as well. There's some differences between the two. Um, in ECS, a service, as well as providing a, a stable point of entry um, to, to a set of services or pods, um, it also provides the the stable number of pods. So the um, it will you know if we ask it to run ten pods, the service is responsible for ensuring that there are always ten uh, tasks. Um, sorry, I'll use the pods and tasks word interchangeably there. We'll try and get the right ones for the right services. Um, but in uh, in Kubernetes, the function of maintaining a stable number of of pods is deferred to the replica sets object. So the service does one thing. Um, which provides that stable point of access. The replica set is responsible for maintaining the number of pods. So there are some slight differences there, um, but neither of them are, are, are an ECS task. That is a, as, as we talked about before, that is the smallest unit of deployment for ECS. 
as a pod is for Kubernetes. Thanks for clarifying that, Mitch. And there are times when you need storage. Kubernetes containers provide ephemeral storage by default. That means just, you know, like our normal storage, that a restart of the pod will wipe out any data on such containers. And therefore, this form of storage is quite limiting. Now, ideally, you should be persisting anything valuable to a persistent store, such as, you know, a database or S3. But if you do need storage accessible to all of your containers, Kubernetes volume provides persistent storage that exists for the lifetime of the pod itself. This storage can also be used as shared disk space for containers within the pod. Volumes are mounted at specific mount points within the container, which are defined by the pod configuration and cannot mount onto other volumes or link to other volumes. The same volume can be mounted at different points in the file system tree by different containers. If we talk about storage here, we have Kubernetes volumes, but we also have EFS, which is an NFS compliant storage. Which one should we use, Mitch? I'm going to do the the stereotypical solutions architect response to that question. And it's going to be, it depends. And I'm not going to defer you to uh, reading the documentation. I will elaborate on that a little bit more, but it, but it really does depend. Um, and it depends heavily on the use case itself. Now, the great thing is for our customers that we give you the choice. If you want to use EFS um, as, a, as a distributed file system, um, which is highly available and, and highly performant and extremely scalable, then you can mount or you can mount um, EFS volumes or file systems uh, into Kubernetes pods uh, using the CSI drivers or the container storage interface drivers that we um, co-sponsored, co-created, co-developed and, and have released. And that's available on GitHub. Um, we'll probably include the links to those projects in the show notes for your reference. Um, this is a great place, or EFS specifically, is a great file storage system if you're looking to store large volumes of, um, of data for machine learning or analytics workloads, and you need concurrent access or parallel access to that file system for, for processing of that information. Um, on the flip side, uh, obviously, we've got elements or storage solutions like EBS or Elastic Block Storage, which, prov which provides a very different type of file access pattern um, and, and file system semantics uh, that you would need for running um, lower latency type of workloads, perhaps database workloads um, are, are more preferable to run on EBS than they are to run on a solution like EFS. And again, we've got CSI or container storage interface drivers available that can be uh, loaded into your Kubernetes deployments and used then to mount these EBS volumes inside of your, your pods uh, and used to provide a, a level of persistence there. Um, but it doesn't stop there. Just by essentially attaching an EBS volume to a container inside of Kubernetes doesn't ensure that persistence. Um, it does provide a place for you to write the data, but what you want to do is you want to ensure that that same volume is mounted to the workload that, that should have access to that particular volume. Uh, and for that, we use a concept called stateful sets. And stateful sets is yet another object inside of Kubernetes that allows us to define a persistent uh, or common identity or unique identity is probably the better way to describe it for a given pod. That is to say that when I launch a pod, um, typically that pod is just like any other pod. They're, they're no different to one another. They don't have anything unique about them. They all do the same thing and they all do the same thing well. Um, when it comes to mounting volumes, though, I want to mount a specific volume to a specific pod because it might be running, for example, uh, you know, it might be running my MySQL. Uh, it might be the master uh, node within MySQL cluster deployment inside of Kubernetes. So I want to make sure that um, only the, the master of MySQL cluster gets 
um, gets the, the volumes mounted to it, the EBS volumes mounted to it. So in that case, then by providing, using stateful sets and providing a unique ID to that particular container, I can ensure that the correct EBS volume is mounted to that particular container. Moving on, let's talk about namespaces because Kubernetes provides a partitioning of the resources it manages into non-overlapping sets called namespaces. They are intended for use in environments with many users spread across multiple teams or projects or even separating environments like development, test, and production. Kind of like a bit of segregation here. I want to touch on config maps and secrets. I alluded to this before. So a common application challenge is deciding where to store and manage configuration information for your applications, some of which may contain you know, sensitive data, um, you know, connection strings, etc. Could be anything, you know, it could be fine-grained as individual properties or coarse-grained information like you know, a JSON or an XML blob. Kubernetes provides two closely related mechanisms to deal with this need. So you've got config maps and secrets, both which allow for configuration to be made without requiring an applic requiring the application, you know, to have this embedded. It can be loaded at build. Now the data from config maps and secrets will be made available to every single instance of the application, which these objects have been bound to via the deployment. Now, I guess the question I have for you, Mitch, is if I was a dev, should I be using say Kubernetes secrets or secrets manager? What are the pros and cons here? The, if, if as a dev, my experience of, of the developers that I get to work with is that they're always looking for the most convenient and practical way to do things. And I think that Kubernetes secrets provide a lot of that, right? They're, they're an extremely convenient way of storing data, um, secret material specifically, and then accessing that data because we can quite easily and, and natively with minimal effort um, mount a secret volume inside of a container and access the material inside of that particular mount point. Um, for our application, whether that's database credentials, um, usernames and passwords for, for other services that we want to interact with. On the flip side, the it, it lacks some of the more advanced features that purpose-built um, credential and secret management solutions offer. Um, automatic credential rotation, for example. Now, Secrets Manager or AWS Secrets Manager does provide those functions. It's a purpose-built secrets management solution that's designed to integrate with other AWS services. So for example, Lambda, it also includes encryption at rest and it supports um, policies for automatic rotation of those, um, of those secrets. So it used to be that there was a trade-off that needed to be made between the convenience of a solution like um, the Kubernetes secrets object and some of these more advanced features that are available from, from external solutions. What we've seen though recently is a number of great open source projects come to the forefront by organizations like GoDaddy that allow us to get the best of both worlds. Um, the convenience of the Kubernetes native secrets object um, with the functionality of external solutions like um, Secrets Manager. So GoDaddy has a project called Kubernetes External Secrets. Uh, and this essentially creates a custom resource definition inside of the Kubernetes API. Um, which then allows us to reference an external secret stored inside of the AWS Secrets Manager solution. We can then reference that external secret in exactly the same way that we would reference a standard Kubernetes secret. So tick for um, convenience uh, and tick for functionality because those secrets that are actually stored inside of the AWS Secrets Manager solution benefit from 
all of the goodness and and uh, and an advanced functionality that a, a custom built or purpose built solution for secrets management management offers. So. Um, Gone are the days where it was one or the other. I think now we're starting to see a convergence of those two traits or those two um, uh, features, uh, and we're using these external capabilities to build those integrations. So GoDaddy's external secrets is a great way. There are a number of other open source projects that are out there that I would encourage you to, to check out to get the best of both worlds. And again, we'll look to add some of the show notes um, to, to include in some of the show notes links to some of these resources that I think will be very helpful. So look, if I'm reading this correctly, if I'm a say a heavy AWS user and I'm integrating with other AWS services like RDS, etc., Secrets Manager may be you know a more appropriate offering here because it's going to give me uh, allow me to have touch base into not only Kubernetes or into my containers, etc., but to the rest of the AWS ecosystem. Yeah. Does that sound about right? I think that's spot on. And and again, back to your original question, if I was a developer, and I think the key there is, is we're, as developers, we want things to be straightforward and simple. We don't want to necessarily spend too much time on the things that aren't adding value. And the value that we add as developers uh, and product engineers is building features and capabilities that our customers can use. The fact that we need a secret um, is 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 a necessity, it's, but it's not necessarily adding any value. So if I can offload as much of that responsibility to another service as as, um, as possible, that's going to allow me to focus more time on 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 building cool features for my customers. So from a convenience perspective, again, and I call out convenience a lot, and I think that is the Kubernetes secrets object is extremely convenient. It just lacked those advanced features and functions. Now with some of these integrations that we've already talked about. Um, you get those features and functions um, integrated with the native Kubernetes secrets object as well. And, and as I said, more, more projects out there that can also achieve the same thing. Good one. Okay, Mitch, look, I'm going to wrap that up there. Let's quickly talk about CNI because networking is another place where things get a bit different. And I really like the choice Kubernetes provides in this space. Now, for those who live and breathe Kubernetes or are dabbling, you may have heard the term CNI or the container network interface. It's a library definition, a set of tools under the umbrella of the CNCF, so the Cloud Native Computing Foundation project, I should say. Kubernetes uses CNI as the interface between network providers and Kubernetes networking. And Mitch, there are a lot of CNI providers out there. People may have heard of Calico, Flannel, for example. Yes, there are there are a lot. Um, it's probably worth just taking a quick step back to talk about what's important from a networking perspective when it comes to Kubernetes. And, and Kubernetes, the, the team behind Kubernetes or the original team behind Kubernetes, um, set forth a, uh, a set of standards or principles or tenets, as we like to call them at AWS, um, that, that, are for, that, sh- that needed to be taken into account when building um, networking solutions for Kubernetes. And that is that every pod should have its own IP address. All pods should be able to talk to one another. Those are, are two of the core elements of Kubernetes networking. And there are a number of different ways that you can do that. And, and one of the ways is, is CNI. It's a standards-based technology that's designed to to tell an underlying software-defined network like VPC, for example, how to connect a container to a network or how to help the container to connect to the underlying network there. Uh, It's pluggable. It has a pluggable-based architecture, meaning that you can bring in additional elements to that based on the, the requirements of the solution you're developing for. So in the case of EKS, we have the AWS VPC CNI. 
That's um, the standard supported CNI plugin for running Kubernetes with EKS. And that integrates with VPC natively. So every pod inside of a Kubernetes cluster running under EKS gets a VPC IP address. Um, it can route on the underlying VPC fabric in the same way that any other network connected resource on your VPC can. Uh, do as well. Um, the considerations there are obviously things like it will draw pods, uh, sorry, it will draw IP addresses from your pool of um, VPC IP addresses. So just be wary of that and make sure that your VPC subnets are sized accordingly. Um, it's, in my experience, you tend to have a lot more containers than you, you would have typically had virtual machines as well. So be, be aware of the size of that. Um, CNI is also a, a, a CNCF project as well. So it's maintained by the same organization that was at one point responsible for, for Kubernetes. And I, I say was at one point primarily because Kubernetes has since graduated now to a to a to its self-managed project. Um, it's not a, under the, the, the umbrella of, of the CNCF anymore. It's what they call a graduated project now. Okay, cool. Now we have released our own CNI plugin called the Amazon VPC CNI K8, which addresses a lot of these gaps. Now by default, when a new network interface are allocated for pods, IPMD uses the worker nodes primary elastic network interface or ENI, security groups and subnet. However, there are use cases where your pod in network interfaces should use a different security group or subnet within the same VPC as your control plane security group. For example, you know, as Mitch mentioned before, you know, there are a limited number of IP addresses available in a subnet. You're going to be having using more uh, IPs because you know you're going to have more containers, and typically you'd have EC2s, and this can limit the number of pods that can be created in the cluster. Or it could be for security reasons. You know, your pods must use different security groups or subnets than the node's primary network interface. Uh, the worker nodes are configured in public subnets, and you want your pods to be placed in private subnets using, say, a NAT gateway. So there we go. And now just to note here, um, if you are wanting to use the Amazon VPC CNI plugin, you need to have Kubernetes version 1.4.0 or later. Now, Mitch, apart from CNI, another term that goes hand in hand with Kubernetes is Istio. <laughs> At a high level, Istio to me, it's a service mesh that layers transparently onto existing distributed applications. It's also a platform including APIs that can integrate into logging platforms or telemetry. It's diverse. Um, you know, it allows you to run a distributed microservice architecture. But how does Istio compare to, say, Envoy or AppMesh? Wow, the comparison questions. So I, I guess let me take a step back first and, and say that the term Istio it does come up and, and it does go hand in hand a lot with Kubernetes, but uh, more more relevant, I guess, is the term service mesh. And you, you mentioned that Istio is one of a number of different implementations of a service mesh. And the, the service mesh concept, um, which was originally coined, I think, as a phrase by the team over at Buoyant, was, um, as you called out, a transparent layer that's really designed to sit underneath distributed applications and really facilitate that reliable service-to-service -service communication. Um, but on top of that as well, it also helps address a lot of the cross-cutting concerns, logging, consistent monitoring, uh, instrumentation of applications. Now, Istio is one implementation of a service mesh, um, which is based on the open source service proxy Envoy. Now, that is a, a project that was created by the team over at Lyft. And the service proxy 
Envoy, um, which is essentially really the the, the brains of the, the service mesh um, where, where all the, the good stuff and the action happens, is a, is a process that gets attached to an application running inside of a Kubernetes pod. All of the network requests then that need to get out of the application and onto the mesh or onto the, 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 the wider network and talk to other services or pods, then ingress and egress through that service proxy. And the Envoy proxy then is able to decorate those requests with all of the necessary tracing information, trace IDs, grab the instrumentation, or sorry, uh, grab the telemetry from those service requests and make dynamic routing decisions to distribute those requests if an upstream service is showing signs of, of a problem. AppMesh is the AWS uh, managed service mesh offering which also uses Envoy as a service proxy. So from a service proxy perspective, it actually uses the same technology as Istio and um, is able to perform many of the same actions or um, add many of the same benefits that Istio is able to add to, to a uh, Kubernetes deployment. And the difference being from a management perspective is that AppMesh is a fully managed solution. Um, and it integrates very tightly into the rest of the AWS ecosystem as well. Um, you can create your virtual networks, your virtual nodes, your virtual services, and your virtual routers using all of the standard um, mechanisms that you would use to create other resources inside of AWS. So specifically things like the uh, management console or, or the APIs as well. So they do, they do essentially solve the same thing. Istio has been around a little bit longer, so it has a few more functions and, and um, features that, uh, that aren't available yet in AppMesh. But rest assured that we're continuing to work hard based on the feedback that we get from our customers to keep iterating on top of AppMesh and building more features into AppMesh. Um, like recently, we, we released a feature that allowed you to do mutual TLS authentication or TLS encryption between service-to-service uh, -service calls. Okay, thanks for explaining that, Mitch. Okay, so Kubernetes, we've obviously got our own container orchestration platform, ECS. So I guess I'd really like to focus on, you know, why choose Kubernetes and how does it differ to ECS? In my mind, you know, it's about this, you know, the hybrid world. I see a lot of customers who are talking about, you know, running their container orchestration across hybrid environments go down the Kubernetes path. Is that a compelling reason to choose Kubernetes? So I think that the conversation around hybrid is, a, is an interesting one. And I think uh, we have, we, we've, we, again, we're, we're very much focused on providing customers with options and choices. And both ECS and EKS slash Kubernetes um, now can be run in a hybrid mode um, using services like um, Outposts. So you can deploy an outpost into your own facility, into your own data center, and actually run both ECS and EKS um, in a hybrid way. Um, the benefit of doing it that way is that you get to leverage the same centralized, managed, and highly available and secure control plane um, that you would do if you were deploying straight into your local AWS region, um, but for resources being deployed specifically into a data center uh, environment um, close to uh, potentially workloads that have high volumes of data and need very, very low latency response times, or in situations where you've got um, data sovereignty requirements that, that uh, perhaps dictate that you can't move certain data assets to uh, to other parts of, uh, of, of the world or uh, AWS public cloud regions. In answer to your question, is it a reason to choose Kubernetes over another service? 
I would say it's one reason, but it's not necessarily the only reason uh, you might choose Kubernetes. Um, and it shouldn't be necessarily the deciding factor over whether you chose Kubernetes or a native solution like ECS, given that now we do provide the ability to run hybrid versions of both of those services using Outposts. Cool. You know, in my mind, sometimes I feel like, you know, is this a, a beta versus VHS <laughs> uh, race here? You know, is, will there be one winner? Can there be, can there be both? I don't know. Now, I often preface that with customers when I talk about ECS versus Kubernetes and the integration and what they're doing on AWS. Maybe you want to elaborate a little bit more here, Mitch, on the integration between these two orchestration platforms with existing AWS services. The fact that ECS is our own product that we've been developing for for you know for a number of years now, um, we own the the solution, we own the source code. Our teams built that product from the ground up. Naturally, means that we have an ability to move a lot faster when it comes to building integrations with other AWS services. Because for the most part, we have direct access to the teams that run those services. Uh, we all develop applications and services in the same way. We all use the same kinds of APIs and interaction models. So for us to build native integrations with services like IAM for um, ECS, that's a much more straightforward proposition than it is to build those native integrations for, for Kubernetes. And the primary reason for that is that we, Kubernetes is an open source project. One of our tenants um, for the EKS service is that it would always be a native and upstream version of Kubernetes. We never had the intention, and our goal is never to create a Franken-Kubernetes distribution specifically tailored for AWS. So what we have to do is we have to work closely with the community to understand the best way um, to integrate AWS services without changing the fundamentals of Kubernetes itself. And you've seen some of the work that we've done in this space already to build tighter integrations with concepts or features like uh, service accounts for IAM roles, or sorry, IAM roles for, for service accounts. Um, so with IAM roles for service accounts, what we're now able to do um, is actually use IAM um, service roles or roles um, and allocate those to service account constructs or objects inside of Kubernetes and then allow pods to inherit those or um, attach those uh, Kubernetes service accounts to themselves and inherit the associated IAM privileges. Uh, we didn't have to change the way Kubernetes fundamentally operated to do that. We found and used existing features inside of the Kubernetes project core and, and used those and, and tailored them specifically for a use case that we had. And what you'll see is you'll see more of that as we'll, we'll start to explore other ways of leveraging existing functions, functions and features um, that are general in their usage, but can be tailored to use specific AWS integrations. Cool. Okay. So if you were starting your container journey and you were wedded to the AWS platform, would you go down the ECS path? Is that what you're saying, Mitch? Or would you look to do something like Kubernetes? My advice to customers is... Start simple, uh, start with the specific goal that you're looking to try and achieve. And if the goal is to package up software as a container and deploy software as a container, then deploying that containerized application on ECS using our serverless container runtime Fargate is by far the, the most straightforward way to get started. Um, 
I will tell you of an anecdote um, that I, I met with a customer recently that was getting ready to start using Kubernetes, and, and I asked them a little bit more about you know why why and the how. And um, really, the, the, the crux of it came down to, well, there wasn't really a solid why. Um, they'd done a bit of reading. They'd heard a bit about Kubernetes. They'd had some recommendations from some colleagues about using Kubernetes. But ultimately, when we scratched the surface and, and peeled the layers of that onion, it was clear that they simply wanted to run a containerized version of their application and get some experience with, uh, with containers. So we ran a small proof of concept. Um, they'd already done a bit of work with EKS and Kubernetes. We ran a proof of concept to try and achieve the same thing using ECS and Fargate. And they were able to achieve the same thing in, in pretty much um, an hour to two hours um, versus something that took them a bunch of days. Um, and I don't know the specifics of how long, but uh, their feedback was that they found it a much more straightforward experience. Now, they landed on the point where they said, you know, they'll, they'll actually use a combination of both. They'll use Kubernetes where it makes sense for them. Um, and they have teams in their organization that are well experienced using Kubernetes. But for a lot of their workloads where they just don't need some of those features that Kubernetes offers, they're happy to use ECS and Fargate. So I often start with the customer's um, need, which is typically to package and deploy software using containers. And, and let's find a reason why ECS and Fargate doesn't work for you. And, and there might be reasons, and there often are, and we'll look at those, and we may then look at using something like Kubernetes to address some of those needs. Um, on the flip side, you've got other customers that are already coming to the platform that have a long history of using Kubernetes, have built teams and practices around Kubernetes, have a lot of experience in Kubernetes. And great, if that's the case, then we have an option for you. You can come... Um, you can relinquish some of the management control over to the EKS managed control plane, but you can still leverage all of your existing tools and experiences and, and well-trained engineers to continue to do things on Kubernetes in the way that you always have done. Perfect answer. I think textbook, you know, it's taking it back to the customer requirements. It's not actually talking about tech for the sake of tech here. And I'll use an antidote to that, you know, just to... I guess, emphasize your point about, you know, if you've got existing skills and technologies, et cetera, just because, you know, you may have amazing complicated, well, not complicated, you may have an amazing technical solution that, you know, delivers something amazing. If you, if you don't have people who can support it, it's really not, you know, going to end up in a great result here. It is. It is. All right. So, Mitch, you've just told us about, you know, what you would do, you know, if you were starting your container journey. And I guess it really depends on what your objectives are as a customer, you know, your capabilities, etc. you know, what your plans are. Let's talk about Amazon's Kubernetes offerings. You know, you've alluded to these before. I want to talk about EKS, which is our fully managed Kubernetes service. Um, you know, it deeply integrated services such as CloudWatch, auto-scaling groups, IAM, VPC, etc. Um, you can deal with AppMesh. You can also use Instio. Um, you know, it gives you that native Kubernetes experience. And additionally, EKS is scalable. It has a highly available control plane that runs across multiple availability zones. So no single points of failure and so on. Um, but then there is Fargate. So Fargate, which is an abstraction layer, I guess, on top is our serverless compute engine for containers that works with both ECS and EKS and makes it, you know, really simple, as you mentioned, to focus on building your applications and getting them out the door. So it removes the need to provision and manage those servers. So we're talking EC2 instances here, either running EKS or ECS, and you only pay for the resources 
that the application is consuming. Now, how does Fargate apply to EKS? It applies in much the same way that it applies to ECS, um, in that we, you know, we're essentially providing you with a different way or a different medium on which to run your containerized applications. Uh, the benefit of Fargate for EKS and ECS is that the operating model is, uh, the, or the effort associated with that operating model is very different, and it's, it's much less. As you, as you mentioned, there are, there are typically EC2 instances that need to be managed, um, and that can take all sorts of different uh, forms, um, from managing the scale, managing the security, managing the patching, uh, managing the availability. Um, all of that work has to be done by someone or, or some groups of people. Fargate changes that operating model significantly in that now, essentially, there is no operating system for you to manage anymore. There's no operating system that needs to be patched. There's no infrastructure that needs to be scaled. We take care of all of that heavy lifting for you, allowing you to focus on the, the reasons that you chose to use for, uh, containers in the first instance, which is primarily to create, release, deploy, scale applications much faster than you traditionally would have been able to do in uh, on your on-premise environments or environments where you were having to manage lots of infrastructure to deploy and scale. Now, one of the questions that I get asked a lot from customers, especially when it comes to EKS um, and, and Fargate, is how much of a lock-in does this present? Uh, if I'm using Fargate, you know, it seems like a very specific AWS capability. Um, what if I wanted to then try and run this environment on-prem in my own um, environment, uh, in a data center, in Minikube, um, any of those different ways that I might decide to run Kubernetes? And I think it's important to call out that the way that we've deployed Fargate aligns with our tenants, and that is to provide a native and upstream Kubernetes experience. So when you deploy a pod into Fargate when you're running on top of EKS, all you're doing is you're attaching some metadata to your pod. So you will maybe, when you create, we call, a, we call it a Fargate profile, which is a resource inside of uh, your EKS deployment, which um, essentially says, if at any point in time you launch a pod that has either into a specific namespace or has a particular label attached to it, instead of running it on an EC2 instance, run it on um, on Fargate. Um, so all you're doing is you're defining a pod and you're attaching a label. If the cluster understands that label, it will run the pod on Kubernetes. If it doesn't, as if, as in, imagine you were deploying it on-prem or into onto Minikube, for example, then it would just ignore that label and it would just run it in exactly the same way. So we're using standard Kubernetes building blocks and concepts, pods and labels, um, but we have a, an underlying layer that intercepts those calls and is able to then route the requests to run on Fargate. So to answer the question, is it, is it, a, is it a lock-in? Does it provide lock-in? No, it doesn't. Um, it provides you with a way to significantly reduce your operational overhead when running Kubernetes pods on AWS. If you then decide to take those same manifest files that you've written in, in YAML and run them somewhere else, they work exactly the same way. Cool. Okay. So one of the other things that I noticed with Kubernetes is how fast it is moving. You know, there are new versions that seem to be released quite frequently here. Um, you know, approximately every three months is a new minor version, which I believe is supported for approximately nine months after it's released. Can you talk a little bit about our support policy, Mitch? And, you know, is this like, in my mind, like PHP to a degree where there is a new version constantly, like as a Kubernetes end user, am I having to update my 
uh, EKS cluster constantly here? Like, you know, what what should I do? You know, do I have to worry about managing this religiously or is it a bit of a set and forget process? So the answer is twofold. Um, when you run Kubernetes, uh, yes, you should be concerned about updating Kubernetes. It is an open source project. Um, it is in a lot of instances and cases running mission critical software. And as with every system that is running mission critical software, uh, ensuring compliance to security patching um, and regimes is, is, is very important. And this was one of the reasons why a lot of customers came to us and asked us to build EKS as a service, because it was very hard work to keep up with the release cadence of Kubernetes. Um, there is at least once a quarter, a minor release of Kubernetes, so a, a 1.16, 15, 14, 13, um, and then lots of interme- intermediate patches um, released between those those regular quarterly updates as well. So there's a lot of work that goes into maintaining those particular capabilities, sorry, those particular uh, versions. And um, obviously, aside from the security benefits of keeping up to date, there are functional benefits as well. If you don't necessarily keep up to date with uh, the latest and greatest, you might not be able to get the benefits, the full benefits of the Kubernetes platform. So when we launched EKS as a managed service, we we, um, very quickly uh, after launch uh, 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 made the feature available to automatically upgrade the control plane. Remember, this is the primary a managed component of an EKS cluster. This is where the brains of your Kubernetes cluster sit. So we provide a capability now to auto-upgrade that control plane for you. What we didn't do was provide a way for you to automatically update the nodes or the workers inside of your cluster. This is where your containers run, and these are, you know, for example, your EC2 instances. Um, subsequently, we, we, we actually launched a feature called Manage Nodes, EKS Manage Nodes, which does provide management of that lifecycle of those nodes for you. So now we can also take care of the upgrade of the client-side components. And when I say client-side, I mean the bits that are running on the nodes, not on your laptop. So now we have coverage of both the control plane upgrade process and the, the, the client-side or the node-side upgrade process. So core components like the kubelet, for example, which, which need to be maintained um, in terms of version concurrency or currency with the, with the control plane. Um, so that, that helped a lot. Uh, we, we had other customers that had actually been out and, and written automated processes for doing this. So I uh, actually had a colleague that worked with a customer that wrote a fairly comprehensive set of automations using system manager um, and auto scaling groups to automate the process of upgrading these things. But again, it's it's a lot of heavy lifting that really distracts away from the real reason you chose to go down the path of using containers and Kubernetes in the first place, which was building, iterating, releasing, scaling applications really quickly. And then obviously with the introduction of Fargate, that goes away even further. So now um, we manage, if, if you deploy on top of Fargate with EKS, uh, we're managing those operating systems. We're managing those components for you. So um, so you no longer need to worry about updating those instances um, with the appropriate versions of Kubernetes to maintain currency with the current version. Now, Mitch, we're almost out of time today, but how does one get started on EKS? I want to know more about EKS. How do I you know, get my hands dirty here? There are some great getting started guides on our website on the public documentation um, easily uh, to get you started um, as with most AWS services getting going is is relatively straightforward as well um, the, the the management console is is fairly well 
is fairly well documented and uh, fairly intuitive. But if you want that extra helping hand, there are some great resources um, created and collaborated on by the wider AWS team, um, like the EKS Workshop, for example, or eksworkshop.com. And this provides a series of step-by-step walkthroughs ranging from beginner through to advanced on all things EKS. Um, So it will guide you through creating an EKS cluster using the open source EKS CTL command line tool, which is a project that we are big supporters of created by the great guys over at Weaveworks and now maintained and contributed to by a variety of different people, including folks at AWS. Um, It will guide you through creating services, deploying microservices, configuring logging, configuring service meshes, configuring network policies. So everything and anything you can imagine you might ever want to do when it comes to Kubernetes and specifically Kubernetes running on EKS is well documented in a series of step-by-step guides. So that's a great place to go. The other really useful set of information that will help you get started is are our YouTube videos from our various events. Obviously, a bit of uh, self-promotion for the more advanced users out there. I ran a session um, at Sydney Summit, which was about the art of successful Kubernetes failures. But um, there are a range of wonderful videos put together by my colleagues um, over the last few years, at least since we launched EKS, that will guide you through best practices for deploying Kubernetes on top of AWS. configuring and securing Kubernetes on top of AWS, scaling, running machine learning workloads on top of AWS, and some wonderful blog posts as well. So how about we include a a list of these in the show notes for everyone at home? We shall, we shall. Nice. Now, Mitch, we could keep talking along these lines for ages, but we are way over time today. And hopefully in the magic of editing, we will get this to under one hour. Okay, so in recapping today's show, it was through and through a Kubernetes-themed episode. It was great to have you here, Mitch, and I'm sure our listeners will once again appreciate your time today. As I mentioned, a Kubernetes-themed show, we started reminiscing about its history, going back, looking at where Kubernetes came from, you know, born out of Google, and how we arrived at the position we are today and gave an overview of Kubernetes concepts. We spoke about things like CNI and Istio for container network and, and service discovery before a bit of a Q&A session with Mitch on why Kubernetes. Lastly, Mitch gave us an overview of our Kubernetes offerings and how to get started on Kubernetes. Mitch, been an absolute pleasure having you here on Tech Chat today. And look, listeners, you know what to do. Let us know what you want to talk about. Send us a message at awstechchat at amazon.com. Thank you for having me, Shane. It's been great again. And let's try and not leave it 16 episodes next time. (laughs) (laughs) No worries. Okay. So listeners, until next time, bye for now. And bye-bye and keep contained. Signing off. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, and tune in again to learn about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to AWS Tech Chat by visiting www.awstechchat.com dot com.